This edition of the Ed Surge On Air podcast is brought to you by Dreambox Learning. Dreambox Learning is an adaptive online K-8 math program designed to complement classroom instruction and proven to positively impact student outcomes. Just go to www.dreambox.com slash edsurge for more information. Don't be a robot. That's the advice given to professors who teach online courses at Cal State Channel Islands. It sounds obvious, but it addresses concerns I've heard from many professors that teaching on the internet will be sterile and transactional. No one wants to feel like a cog in the wheel, not when it comes to something as important and personal as teaching and learning. Cal State Channel Islands now even offers a two-week training course for professors that it calls Humanizing Online Learning, full of tips and strategies for forging personal connections with distant students. It's an unusual professional development effort that focuses more on the emotional side of teaching than about conveying content. Hi, I'm Jeff Young, and for this week's Ed Surge On Air podcast, I sat down with two folks behind the humanizing online learning effort. It's creator and instructor, Michelle Pekansky-Brock, and the college's vice president of technology and innovation, Michael Berman. I was surprised to hear how teaching online can involve so much passion and even some tears. We'll have the conversation right after this. Looking for a way to get students excited about learning math and help boost their performance? The Dreambox Learning K-8 online math program personalizes learning for every student while empowering educators to raise student achievement. Its adaptive learning technology analyzes how a student is handling math problems and keeps them in an optimal learning zone by providing each lesson at the right level of difficulty. Students will develop new strategies to ensure deep understanding of key concepts, to develop fluency with important skills, and to cultivate critical thinking. If your school or district needs a math solution that has been proven to enhance math learning in measurable ways, Dreambox Learning is your answer. Just go to www.dreambox.com edsurge for more information. That URL once more www.dreambox.com slash edsurge. I'm here today with two guests from Cal State Channel Islands, Michelle Pekansky-Brock, who is the Innovation Lead for Teaching and Learning Innovations, and Michael Berman, Vice President for Technology and Innovation. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having us. Okay, I wanted to talk about humanizing online learning, which is an effort, as you describe it. And, of course, for me, I look at these things and wonder... What's the problem you're trying to solve, right? I mean, to me, the first thing is, before we talk about kind of what that is in more detail, how would you articulate really briefly, you know, what it is that maybe wasn't humanized enough? Because, of course, we hope that all online learning is humanized, right? As a new and and relatively small Cal State, it was very clear that an important part of the culture was the connection that faculty built with their students. And as soon as you started talking about teaching online, the immediate reaction was, I don't want to do that. Why do you not want to do it? I don't want to do that because I value the connection I have with my students. It's really important to me. That's why I'm here. And online is going to take away from that. And so I'm not interested in that. I'm not interested in in dehumanizing what I do. I want those strong bonds with my students. They need it. These are first-generation students. We have small classes. We really connect with our students. And so that led me to think, what would online education look like for an institution that really values its bond with students? And so that's what I was looking for, and that's where I found Michelle. Yeah, so I had been teaching in the California Community College system, and um, 
very much embrace the student-centeredness of teaching and learning in that environment. Um, and when I started teaching online, I felt exactly the way that those instructors probably, you know, perceived that they would feel. I felt disconnected from my students. What year was this? This was 2003. Okay. Yeah, 2000, around there. Um, and then a couple years into teaching, I was able to start, um, you know... I, I really just started playing around with different tools, thinking, well, this is not cutting it for me. You know, I was teaching in Blackboard, teaching art history and art appreciation in a text-centered environment, and I, I, it, there were so many issues. Um, mm-hmm. And then I started dabbling with this new space called Web 2.0 at the time mm-hmm. um, and found myself be able to create some interesting content and use tools that could have my students engage more directly with each other and with me. And I think the turning point for me was when I was able to hear their voices. Um, and I was uh, using asynchronous voice and video conversations in a tool called VoiceThread, uh, which I still use. But I, rem- I literally remember the moment that I heard my first student talk about a work of art. And I pushed myself away from the table and uh, my eyes filled up with tears. And I was like, I never realized how much... Um, how much content there is in a student voice and how I could perceive such dimensions of what they were taking away from the activity. And then the relationships that started to build between the students that I could perceive not, you know, I thought community was growing, but at the end of my classes, when I just did formal surveys, the comments were really, really amazing. Um, So even when the voices were asynchronous on a recording streamed over the net, you didn't lose that. No. And actually, I think for me, um, that asynchronous part, especially for underrepresented students who feel, um, you know, they feel a lot of self-doubt. They don't often feel included in academic culture. And so they have a lot of fear about speaking up. So when we look at the classroom, it's, um, you know, saying something in the middle of a whole class, it's typically not something a lot of students in those categories do but when you have the opportunity to stop record again listen to it and then see yourself develop over time so um that's that's where things really kind of popped for me it's interesting i was thinking as you were talking michelle that we 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 use the metaphor of the student voice we talk about the student voice and yet for you it was literally hearing the student voice that was the the aha moment and the moment of connection Mm -hmm. i wanted to just um Drill into that a little more because you talk in your, yeah, so you've been kind of on the speaking circuit and in blogging and in presence online talking about these issues. And I'm curious about this idea you talk about creating kind of an online presence for your students. Presence is a big word I see. And can you talk a little bit about a specific example maybe that illustrates that of how in an online environment where you're not physically in the same classroom, you can kind of give a sense of presence? It's interesting because to, to find that out, I mean, I look a lot to what my students share uh, in the, the feedback. You know, I do a lot of open-ended, like, just questions and probing. And and one of the themes that I've seen students say, and these are students who have taken a lot of online classes, um, when they have the opportunity to hear each other, mm. they start to come into the class, you know, the next time and loop back to the student's that kind of shared something the previous time. And I, I've, I've had students say repetitively, um, you know, 
so-and-so was really passionate about this topic. And I found myself wanting to hear more from her in the following weeks. And so those extra dimensions, that feeling, you know, I think this is a big part of it too. And especially in higher education with learning, we focus so much on cognition. Right. Like what the content they learned. But what about the effective domain? That's part of learning too. You know, and as humans, um, we feel. And so that dimension in, in, um, in learning is huge and we have to foster it. We have to nurture it or it's not going to happen, especially, especially online. But I think it's true for the classroom too. What I have found is when so often professors don't want to create, um, vulnerable places. They don't want to go to vulnerable places and they don't want to have their students there because there's a lot of anxiety around, you know, well, how do you handle that online? Well, I find that using voice, makes those vulnerable moments so much of an opportunity for connections. And so when you start a class with these kinds of emotions um, and the, the trust begins to be built so quickly when, when it's facilitated effectively. And so that's a really big part of humanizing is how do you facilitate that? Um, and at CI, I think the critical thing that we're doing is immersing faculty in that experience. So they're stepping into a class where they are learners in an online class. It's an asynchronous online class that I facilitate. So this is a class just a uh, this is a class y'all teach to your instructors right. to, in this concept that we're talking about in, yeah. in this, these techniques. It's a two week online class, and it's titled on um, it's titled Humanizing Online Learning and. Um, you know, we, we talk about things like empathy. They learn about what empathy is, but then it's up to me to really model that and have them experience what it feels like to learn in an online environment with an engaged instructor who's empathetic, who cares about them, and who's going to follow up and be sure that, you know, they're going to they're gonna make it, you know. Do you find faculty resistant to that? Um, I'm sure some are, but I think what happens... There's a couple of things that happens. Um, I think inviting faculty into an asynchronous class, you're more likely to get those who are reluctant because it's very different than saying, come to this room mm-hmm. and let's talk about this, you know, because that just, that really puts you on the spot. And I think that, um, I, sure, I probably get more faculty who just kind of, oh, I'm just going to kind of check this out. But we can see in the, the evaluations at the, end, at the end of the course that we have a lot of instructors that are coming in with that exact perception still about this, you know, online learning is this, it's a correspondence class. Um, All about the content. Yeah. And so by the end, they're like, okay, you know, we're seeing comments like, I understand why interaction is so important. I can see how I can be me now in this environment. Um, and just a lot of shifting of perceptions. Those perceptions, I think, are huge still. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I think is so powerful in what Michelle is doing is the modeling. Because if you think about it, the generation of instructors we have right now, most of them have never had on, an online learning experience. They've never been a student. They've never been a student in an online learning experience especially never in a good online learning experience. I mean, they've probably had some kind of online instruction module for some, you know, we all have these online things for state compliance where we do these 45-minute courses, and they've just, it really is just checking a box, right? You've gone through and you've looked at the content and you've taken little quiz questions that you just take to get right. It's like, it's like doing your, um, 
your online driver's school after you get yeah. a ticket or something. You know? Kind of like no wonder they're resistant. That's yeah. right. And so if that's your model of online, then of course you're going to dislike it. On the flip side, I, I think if you talk to anyone who's an instructor, they had formative experiences in the classroom with instructors that they loved. And you ask them about what was, what was the moment when you realized you wanted to be a professor, you wanted to be a teacher. Oh, I had this wonderful teacher in 11th grade. Or when I was in college, I was so nervous in a class and this instructor put me at ease or they started talking about literature and all of a sudden, you know, I never really cared about, about it. All of a sudden I wanted to read Moby Dick or whatever that experience was. We've all had these formative experiences, but for this generation of instructors, except maybe for the very first ones just now coming along, it was always a classroom experience. It was not an online experience. So when you say, well, you're going to learn about a humanized, personalized, in the old-fashioned sense of personalized connection that you can have with your students, they're skeptical because they've never seen it. The human, human beings are not really that good at imagining things they've never experienced. And so when they go through this experience with Michelle, for many of them, it opens their eyes and they realize that there's something there that they didn't know they could do. And, and, and they realize it can be pretty great and then they want to do it. So I wanted to ask you about that. Cause I, I listened to one of your, you know, the, the YouTube is filled with, with things and you had given a talk once that I watched. Um, and you talked about a, an experience in your own education mm-hmm. that was similar to what you're talking about. Exactly. And if you could quickly kind of, um, tell that story about, uh, I think it was with a, maybe a, a photograph. Yeah. And photographing water. Is yeah. Right? So I had a, 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 I don't think I've heard this one. <laughs> no. Well, I had a, I had a fantastic, um, physics instructor. And what, what age is this or it was grade? 12th grade. So I high think. school. High sure. school. It was in high school. And, um, I struggled at the time with the sort of mechanics, literally of doing physics and doing the mathematics and, I wasn't really that into it at that age. I was thinking about other things, music and girls and other things. And, and, um, but he, he was, uh, he always had his room open at lunchtime and you could go in and we would go in and we would listen to music and we would hang out and he'd put together some apparatus for photographing, um, with a little tripwire so that, uh, I think there was a little switch that if something passed through, it would take a photograph, a little Polaroid photograph. And, I had seen photos of a water drop, a water drop hitting the surface of a water, hitting the surface of water. And so we said, Mr. Layton, can we try to take a photograph like that? Absolutely. You know, it's like, I can only give you three packs of Polaroid because that's all I've got. But, you know, if you can do it in those 24 pictures, go for it, whatever it was. And so we figured out, okay, we're going to have to turn out the lights in the room and we'll get a flash. And when the water passes through the switch it'll trip the flash and so we'll open the camera on the polaroid in the dark and then it'll pass and we figured but you had to, he didn't tell you how to do he it. didn't tell us anything he just said well this is what it can do you figure it out and it was just so exciting and so when we finally got that blurry picture of the water of the drop of water hitting the surface of the water and seeing the drop deform uh it was wonderful and it was just and it made then trying to understand the mathematics of a of an object falling through space so much more interesting and it was because he, he loved his students and he wanted us to have those kind of experiences that he was willing to sit and eat lunch in his room every day so that students could come in and, and do experiments and, and just hang out. And, um, and, there, and the world's full of teachers like that, right? But We've can all that had, be done online is the question. That, 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 that's the question, right? Can you have that kind of human connection? And so it was when Michelle came to campus 
um, before she was working with us and spoke to a group of faculty. And she talked about the, the experiences that she had as a art history teacher online that, you know, could bring her to tears and bring her students to tears and create lifelong connections with friends that she still has just as, as people do in an on as if in a face-to-face class, right? Every, everyone who's been a faculty member can tell you stories of students who come back and see them or they send them emails or they send them baby pictures when their children are born. And Michelle was having those kind of connections online. And I said, okay, this is the kind of online teaching that will motivate the faculty who love their students and love, love to teach. And fortunately I'm at a place where we have a lot of faculty like that. That's the majority of our faculty want to have those kind of connections. And um, so I knew then that Michelle was the one who could lead us there. I think part of what you're getting at is, um, so I've talked a lot about humanizing from like the facilitation perspective, but there's a course design element too. And I think that there's also this assumption that learning online has to involve, you know, content and things that you're doing online, but it doesn't. Like a strict schedule. Well, you can do anything with an all. You can have your students go do anything. When I was teaching the history of photography, I mean, I had students who were building camera obscuras in their bedrooms. They were turning their rooms into camera obscuras, you know, and I gave them steps about how to, but they figured it out on their own and, and they did that and they documented it mm-hmm. and then shared the documentation, the evidence with us. Um, one student made a, a, a video of him actually making this little camera obscura. So these hands-on, these experiences that happen offline can be part of an online class. That's what I'm, that's where I'm trying to go. It's not like online banking, right? Online banking, you're sitting there online doing your banking, but online learning is not necessarily taking place while you're online. And it also opens up the whole process of learning by giving you these moments throughout the, you know, the, because the, learning is a long, it's a process. Right. It's not a thing that is, you know, it, it doesn't happen right there at that moment. It's, it builds. It's, it's developed. It's a developmental yeah. process in the learner. I think you, you guys have been careful not to kind of criticize other online programs. Um, and yet I do wonder if, you know, I mean, there are people like I did an interview with Sherry Turkle, which I know, Michael, you had responded to in, a, in an article of your own. Um, but there are people that are kind of looking at this and worrying that um, technology will drive too much, will determine too much, will turn out to be the thing that people do kind of get locked into making it like online banking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that potential seems real, too. Mm-hmm. So. Um, do you, I mean, do you worry that, that it actually is kind of evolving into this more banking like structure out there, um, in the wider higher ed, not at your campus, maybe? Well, I, I, it's interesting that the banking metaphor came up because the idea that learning can be strictly measured as an accumulation of something like Bitcoin concerns (laughs) me. I mean, I don't, I don't think to me, that's not what learning is about. And it's not that I'm opposed to competency-based learning or other other methodologies um, not opposed to doing assessments. But um, I think if we think learning is only that, I have a problem with that. Because I think if we think learning is only what we can measure through multiple choice test, you know, testing to the test, that's a problem. I think we've seen the impact of that in K-12 learning. And I think many of us in higher education are really resistant to to giving up the idea that 
while there's value in what you can assess, there's also value in what's things that are really hard to assess. And often the things that are hard to assess are, or the things that have to be assessed qualitatively right. are more meaningful than the things that can be assessed quantitatively. So if we use technology in a mindless way that alienates us from ourselves and from other people, that's a real problem. And that I think that Turkle and other critics are pointing out something that is real and that should concern us. But I think where sometimes people go too far is the assumption that the technology forces mm. those types of inter- interactions or that the only type of interactions you can have when you work online are inherently inferior to those that are face-to-face. Mm-hmm. They're inherently different. But I think that w- what I take in inspiration from Michelle and others like her, she's finding new ways to communicate to people that in some cases are better than what they're able to do face-to-face. Mm-hmm. They're better because they provide access to people who simply wouldn't be able to to get access to the instruction any other way because of their life circumstances, whatever they might be. They're providing a voice to students who might have a really hard time in a, in a lecture hall with 80 students speaking and really saying what they think. But if they feel that they can sit in their bedroom and say it to Michelle quietly, they may be able to really open up and express themselves in a way they wouldn't be able to otherwise. I think a lot of it has to do with um, these role, the role of the professor, and um, you know, a lot of times there are there are professors who don't even realize it, but you know, they have so much armor on um, to be this professor, and I think by getting them to understand that you know you don't have to be the all knowing, and professors will argue with me and say, yes, I do. Um, but when you can create opportunities to be vulnerable and to maybe not be perfect, I mean, it it starts with something as simple as speaking to a webcam, you know, and I had a, um, a, a professor in a class last year and she said, well, you know, I started out recording these, these comments and these are secure class conversations on, on webcams. She said, and I, I would do about 500 takes before I actually submitted it. And she said, no, I'm down to about 499. <laughs> but um, those strategies, you know, just... But your, not... I mean, your message is actually you can send the, the second take, even if it's a little shaky? You know, if it's a class conversation, why does it have to be this flawless, polished thing? It's not in the classroom. I mean, conversations don't happen that way. You know, there should be some spontaneity the opportunity to record is there and that's what's so great about it. But I mean, and I model that too, you know, I mean, I'll leave a comment at 11 at night before I'm going to bed. And you know, if they see me when I'm not perfect and they hear me when I'm not perfect, I stumble. I think that finding those words in conversation is just part of the beauty of conversation. So um, (laughs) I think that that's a big part of it. And I have, professors at CI that have shared that with me, you know, now that I, I, I do, I feel more connected because I don't feel the need to be so perfect all the time. And that's a hard thing to get a professor to embrace. But I think once, once they can do that, it, it starts to change things. They're, they're more approachable to their students. You know, you have, then you start to have more small conversations after class, if you're teaching in the classroom and, you know, um, those kinds of hallway conversations are really meaningful. Great. Well, I really, uh, I think I'll leave it at that, but thank you both for joining us. I appreciate this. This is a, and it's an interesting challenge to, to focus doing online, online learning.
Thanks for having us. Thanks, Jeff. You've been listening to the Ed Surge On Air podcast. I want to make one brief clarification. The essay mentioned during the conversation, where it was an essay that was kind of responding to a Sherry Turkle critique, that essay was actually written by both Michael Berman and Michelle Pekansky-Brock. I recommend folks check that out. We'll have a link on our um, podcast page. I also recommend folks check out a new podcast by Michelle Pekansky-Brock called Humanize Ed, and we'll link to that on the page as well. This episode was edited and produced by me, Jeff Young, and was recorded between sessions at the Educause Learning Initiative Annual Meeting in Houston. And now here's the part where I remind you to subscribe. We're on all the podcast apps, and you can find us on your iPhone or your Android phone. You can give us a grade on iTunes, or send suggestions or ideas for future guests to feedback at edsurge.com. We'll be back next week with more conversations about the future of education. Thanks for listening.